You guys should already be open up to the book of Acts, chapter 2. So we are just going to continue um, uh, what we started uh, several weeks ago in looking at this great book, the book of Acts. And we're going to um, read, picking up at around verse 37. We'll read from verse 37 to verse 41. I'll give you a quick little backstory, then we'll read this uh, story, the text, kind of where we're at right now. There's a bug up here. It's bugging me. I'm going to catch it. So if you see me move quick with my like, cat-like reflexes, yes, just know I'm killing a bug. So in short, um, what happens in the beginning part of Acts chapter 2 is this is a special feast day called Pentecost. And it was a very important day for Jewish uh, followers that were now, in this case, following Jesus. And they were celebrating this feast of Pentecost. And on the feast of Pentecost, something unique, something extraordinary Happened. It was actually followed up by what we would have been describing as three types of phenomenon, three supernatural, miraculous types of things that happened. Number one, there was this sound of a rushing mighty wind that just rushed through this place. Uh, again, it was inexplicable. It was a phenomenon. Second phenomenon that happened was these tongues of fire began to rest over the heads of each of the disciples that were there in the upper room. Third phenomenon was that everybody began to speak in these really unknown languages that they hadn't formerly studied, but they were actually known languages to other people. So imagine if you came to church and all of a sudden you started speaking in a language you've never known before and someone comes walking up to you, you're like, whoa, you're speaking in a Greek language. Did you know that? And you're like, I have no idea. I'm just like rambling at the mouth. But then they're like, no, what you're speaking in, a, in, in Greek language. I'm Greek. I, I speak Greek. And this is what you're saying. And you're like, I had no idea that's what I was saying, because that's what was happening on this day of the Pentecost, is that these unknown languages were being spoken, and others that were there, they were known languages to them. So these three phenomena were happening, but then it raised questions, because the questions that were basically being asked by a larger growing audience, and we know that the audience was at least 3,000 people that it began to grow and expand to, they're asking the question, like, what, what is going on here? Because you imagine if you show up at a church service and people have a flame of fire on top of their head, someone's going to ask the question, what's going on here? And that's a legitimate question to ask, and that's what they were asking. And so Peter then begins to give his explanation, a monologue, as to what is going on, what's happening. Again, I'm not going to go into this, but this is what we looked at last week. So uh, if you missed last week, I would encourage you maybe check it out. It's online at calvaryslow.com. But then Peter explains to them basically what's happening and in essence says what's taking place right now is you're witnessing the Holy Spirit come upon God's people and a brand new work is beginning to be started. This is what Peter describes. This is the last days. This is the movement of God's Spirit remaking, uh, reinstituting, reconstituting his people around Jesus and, and, and filling them with God's empowering presence, to borrow a phrase that comes from a theologian guy by the name of Gordon Fee. So the idea is that God's presence is now filling all of his people, not just a select group that were prophets or a select group that was a king that was anointed by God in times past, but God was filling every single one of his people with his empowering presence. And this was accompanied by these strange phenomenon that were happening. Again, um, just to pause real quick and to say that there are occasions in the Bible that are descriptive, and then there are others that are prescriptive. This is one of those examples in the Bible that are just simply descriptions. Um, Luke is basically telling us the story as he's receiving it. He's, he's writing it down. We're reading it. It's basically what's happening. So that means that this is not necessarily supposed to happen every single Sunday. So if you come to church and people don't have flames of tongue on their head, you don't walk away and say, well, I guess God's not here. 
because that's not how we operate. Um, could God do that? Of course. God can do anything. This could happen again. These three types of phenomena can happen, or one of them can happen. God could do that. To say that he could not do that in any way, shape, or form, I think, is to put God in a box. But the fact of the matter is, this was just simply description of what was happening and taking place. So the point of the matter is, is that Peter then begins to address what was basically taking place. And then we pick it up at around verse 37. In fact, what I want to do is I want for us to all stand. It's a way for us to show respect to God and God's word. I'll read this, and then uh, we'll pray, and then we'll get to work. Looking at what God has to say. Verse 37 starts off like this. Now, when they had heard this, this is Peter's message or monologue to them. It says, uh, in short, what Peter was, again, backstory. He was saying that you guys killed Jesus. Um, but God raised Jesus from the dead. And now this Jesus that is raised from the dead is now giving his empowering presence to all those that have followed him. And what you're watching, what you're witnessing, what you're experiencing is the giving forth of this Holy Spirit. And so these guys were told were actually cut to the heart. It says, and then they asked Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word, they were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls to the church. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you would then speak our, your word to our hearts and reshape us and reorient our minds to think like you, to have thoughts, God, that are in alignment, in agreement with your kingdom, with your work. God, I pray at the same time that we would also turn from or repent from things that are unlike you, that might claim to have some form of religiousness, but at the end of the day, they, they lack power, they lack grace, they lack your love. God, we want to be Jesus' people. We want to be Jesus' people in a world that's filled with a crookedness, a brokenness. So God, have your way here with our hearts this morning. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You all have seated. So I really want to just focus on three particular verses here this morning. And the main idea that I really want to try to tackle and try to understand is really understanding the fact that when the Holy Spirit came... He was going to transform this, uh, this, this brand new group of people into something uh, that was never really seen before, that was never really noticed before. And the way that he transforms and changes this community of people is, is really unique. It's powerful. And there's three things that I think at least, perhaps even more, but at least three that we'll take a look at that are really descriptive as to what God was doing uh, through the Holy Spirit to reshape, to remake this community of people. So Verse 39, verse 40, and then verse 41 we'll take a look at. First thing that we'll take a look at is that we see that the Holy Spirit would transform these people into uh, what I will just simply describe as a borderless community. I'll come back to this in a second. A borderless community or a community of people that have no borders. This is shocking and this is unique because, again, if you live first century, you were very familiar with tribalism. I mean, in a lot of ways in today's world, we are very familiar with tribalism. I'll talk more about that in a second. The second thing we see is that the Holy Spirit would then transform these people into people that lived as, what I would just describe as dual citizens, people that had dual citizenship. They were part of the Roman Empire, but they are also part of another 
kingdom that was breaking in. The final thing we'll take a look at is uh, verse 41, where we are going to also see that the Holy Spirit was forming them into a movement, a movement that was really, there was momentum, there was action. It wasn't just simply sitting down, uh, looking for forms of comfort and comfortableness, but there was, there was a movement, a momentum to what we begin to see in this early church. And each of these things are going to continue to develop throughout the remainder of the entire book of Acts. So first of all, we'll take a look at this idea of the Holy Spirit transforming this group of people into a community that has no borders, that's borderless. Now, what I mean by that, first and foremost, is we'll take a look at this passage in verse 39, where Peter, as he's talking, he says this, for the promise, it's of the Holy Spirit, the promise is for you and for your children. So first of all, let's take a look at the thought of the promise. The promise is the Holy Spirit, God's presence, will come and do something different than what it formerly had done. So to understand a little bit about the historical context of what Peter's describing, you've got to understand a little bit about Judaism. Judaism, for the most part, had at the center of Israel's life was Yahweh, God. Um, Yahweh, God, had a place where God basically resided. It was called, uh, in former times, when the children of Israel lived in the wilderness, it was within this thing called the tabernacle. God ordered for... uh, Moses and Aaron, his brother, to build or to construct basically this very, very large tent. And at the center of this tent would have been what was called the Holy of Holies. And inside that, there would have been smoke and an altar and incense and all the types of things which you would think about maybe some form um, of religious action and activity. And at the center of that was this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. So if you've ever seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's probably not much anything like that at all. But this Ark would have been sort of the container. It would have been uh, the emblem, the picture, the depiction of God's dwelling place. So wherever the Ark was, that's where God was at. So you following along so far? So one of the things that was noted about God's presence back then was that it was subject to location. You guys following? It was subject to location. So wherever the ark was, that's where God was. So if you're in a city where the ark's not, does God live in that city, at least in a tangible way that you'd be aware of? No. So if God lives in Jerusalem, in the ark, where would you need to go to be near God? You'd need to travel to Jerusalem. So this is the idea. This is sort of the way in which Jewish people would have thought and understood God's presence. Now, the reality is, is that, I mean, even the Psalms were already beginning to hint and the prophets were beginning to hint that really God cannot be contained by a golden box. So this was already sort of being sown into the mind and thinking. So in other words, there were hints already in the ancient world that God was going to basically do something that was going to completely blow the mold and break all sorts of barriers and boundaries that were basically connected to where Israel would go and worship God. So what we see throughout the Old Testament is the beginning, the expansion of this. And what we see in the New Testament, especially in the day of Pentecost, is that God basically says, my presence is no longer going to be relegated to a tabernacle, like in the ancient days, or a temple, like it was during the day when Jesus lived. But my presence is going to be upon and within everybody who I call to myself. So I want you to think about that for a moment, because this is what he goes on to say. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone to whom the Lord God calls to himself. So the picture that 
Peter is basically portraying for us is that God's presence is not just simply going to be relegated to a particular spot or location. It will be given to all. And then you begin to think kind of the telescoping ways or generations and ways this is going to go out. It's going to go to you. This is the direct people to whom he's referring to. You as meaning 120 or the 3,000 people that were there. But then he says to your next generation or your next of kin, i.e. your children. But then he adds this little sentence where he says, and to everyone, um, and to those who are far off, everyone whom God calls himself. This, most scholars would agree that this is a reference to what we would call Gentiles. Now, again, this might not hit you as shocking as it would have hit the first Christians because, and we've been saying this for the past several weeks, that for the most part, many of us don't really realize this, but the first Christians were, for the most part, racist. They basically had an overinflated view of their Judaism and their own self-worth as a culture, as a nation, that to the point of they did not look favorably upon others that were of other nations. They did not look at Samaritans and think those are some amazing people. We would love to welcome them into the party. But what Jesus does is he begins to break down those barriers. And not only that, even within circles where there was a highly masculine type of a context, the men basically had an overinflated view. So there was sexism, there was racism, there was elitism. There were all these things within the early church. And what God was beginning to do is to break down these borders. And what we see throughout the rest of the book of Acts is sort of this expansion of God's kingdom going into territories that would have been formally disallowed. So, for example, what we're going to see in the book of Acts is it will, the, the gospel will then go into a region called Samaria. Now, again, we might read that and not be super shocked by that. But it would be in, uh, something akin to, let's say, for example, in today's world, God saying, look, I want to save lots of people. We're like, yes, we're all about missions. And God's saying, here's where I want to go. I want to go to ISIS territory. I love those people. And we're like, uh, we were told, according to the narrative of society, to actually hate those people, God. Don't you know those are our enemies? And we hate them. You obviously hate them too. And God's like, no, 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 I don't, I don't hate them. I absolutely love ISIS warriors. And I want to save them. Like, do you understand how offensive that is to us? We're like, no, they're our enemies. They stand opposed to Israel. They stand opposed to American dream. They stand opposed to consumerism. They stand opposed to capitalism. They stand opposed to everything that's American. But God's like, I, I love them. And see, what was happening in the early church was God was beginning to erase and destroy and remove these borders and these barriers that have been set up um, and are just sort of innate. They're part of all cultures. We all, as cultures, have them. So again, the question really is situated against the backdrop of how big, the question, how big is God's love? Is God's love big enough to accomplish or to accompany or to come alongside and to take care of us as God's special people? Of course, but is God's love so big that it actually goes to our enemies? You realize how challenging that is? Think about the people that you despise the most. Think about, maybe put it in another context, the people that despise you, so therefore you despise them. Maybe a person, maybe an ex, right? Ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, ex-spouse. People that you would perhaps look at or somebody that was part of a cultural background that was not one that might have caused pain and angst and trouble for you growing up. Think about who those people are, and then put it in the context of saying, does God, is God's love big enough to reach them? Well, the question that has to be asked then is, who are those that are far off? Because that's how far, apparently, God's promise is going to extend to. 
So think about this, for example. For example. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul would continue to develop this concept because Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, he would later go on to say this. You who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And I put in parentheses the idea that he's the king. This is, whenever you read the word Christ, you can also just substitute the word king, the king. So how great is this king? What happens when this king takes charge? What does it look like for King Jesus to take charge? What it looks like, it doesn't look like him alienating the bad guy. It doesn't look like him killing or kicking to the curb the enemy. It looks like him actually going after on a hunt, not to destroy, but to rescue, to pursue. You realize how good a news that is for some of us here that feel really far from God? Some of us here today, we, we might know what the, the Christian narrative says. Christian narrative says, be happy, be joyful, because awesome things are going to come in the future for you. But right now, you find yourself in the midst of great tragedy or hardship or heaviness or angst or anxiety or just whatever types of things that can actually destroy and crush your soul or bring oppression to it. In other words, you feel, in summary, I feel really far from God. I mean, this is what Peter's saying, is that God's presence, God's healing, restorative, life-giving presence is for everyone who's far off. It's you. What that means, you, you cannot sin or do something so bad that to the point where God just simply looks at you and says, it's too far. I'm going to write you off. I've written you off. I want nothing we oftentimes have a tendency to think about God, as I've put it in this context before, as like an angry landlord. But the reality is, Jesus rescripts that. He says, no, no, he's not an angry landlord. He's a loving father that's heartbroken over the fact that you have alienated yourself by your sin, by your shame, by your brokenness. And he's a God that comes out after you to seek and save that which is far off. That's what he's saying. So what we see first and foremost is that this is really a borderless community. And the church, as we continue to see, begin to grow in the book of Acts, is going to begin to move into all these other types of communities and areas that formerly would have been uh, completely taboo. You just simply wouldn't venture into those zones, into those areas, to the point where it gets so radical, you get this guy like Paul, right? Paul's going to enter into the story. Most of you guys are familiar with Paul's story. Paul, in short, is this guy that was raised in a very, very elite form of Judaism. In fact, if you want to liken it to something today, it'd be like Paul would have been the equivalent to like an Al-Qaeda operative or an ISIS operative. In other words, he was raised in this elite form of religion, that Paul would have felt anybody that did not live according to the, 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 the very strict rules and regulations that he lived according to were basically um, compromisers and, and just fuel for God's hellfire one day. And what's shocking about the story of Paul is at some point, Paul, when he meets Jesus, so before he meets Jesus, if Paul's world is this very close uh, enclosed, or I should say, narrow, closed world where Paul has a very small world of people that he can actually associate with because not many people can reach to the status or the level of elitism that Paul basically would feel comfortable hanging around with. But when Paul meets Jesus, all these borders and barriers fall down, and Paul finds himself at a dinner table, hanging out, eating meals with people that were non Jews. Why? What's happening in Paul's life? Because what's happening in Paul's life is his world's actually getting bigger. Let me say it this way. If you're a Christian, in your world, in other words, people that you see as 
people in your life, if, if your world is getting smaller to the point where the list of people who you can and cannot hang out with is growing smaller and shorter, it's a very good possibility you're not growing in what the gospel is all about. But on the other hand, if your world's actually getting bigger, I mean, to the point where you begin to see that there are people that you normally would have never hung out with, spent time with, now you're like, I'm going to hang out with those people. Then you're on the path of the gospel. It expands. That's what we see happening throughout the book of Acts. It's expansive. These borders are being the, beginning to be erased. People that normally would have been taboo, people that normally would have been thrown into the margins are now being brought to table. And you have all of these people, men and female and religious people and non-religious and rich and poor, slave and free, all coming together around this person of Jesus. And they begin to find life together. This is what we see beginning to happen throughout the book of Acts. So we see this, this is really a community that's without borders. Second thing that we see um, throughout this little section here, verse 40, we see that the Holy Spirit is then also shaping people, transforming them to be what I would describe as dual citizens. Take a look at verse 40. He says this, with many other words, he says, he bore witness and he continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now, first of all, he's not saying you guys are responsible for saving yourself. His whole point is that trust in Jesus, repent, turn from your sin, turn from other pathways and lifestyles and ideas and concepts and ideologies and turn to Jesus. That's what he would mean by save yourself. It's not we are saving ourselves. But the idea is that save yourself from this crooked generation. So by implication, what he's describing is that salvation, Jesus intervening in our lives has a lot to do with God taking us from a former lifestyle, that way that Peter describes it, is it's a generation that's crooked. Okay, so think of it this way. The word that's actually used there for crooked, we get the English word scoliosis from, which means something that is uh, rigid or something that is bent or crooked. The idea is that the generation that we live in, the larger Community, culture, world view, however you want to describe it, at large, is actually not straight. It's not in alignment. It's not in agreement with God. And by nature, it's, it's crooked. And so what, what Peter's saying is that save yourself from this generation that's crooked. So what salvation is, is it's God saving us from a generation that's filled with brokenness, crookedness, to a, a life that's filled with with straightness, like the idea where God's straightening our lives to follow him. He's healing us from our brokenness, from our bentedness into something that is alive. So the idea that I think he's beginning to communicate and convey is that by doing this, we are saved from a generation that is on a pathway to destruction and brokenness. And with, though we're still uh, citizens in this culture. Let me give you a couple other examples, and hopefully this will begin to make some sense. Um, take a look at John chapter 17, verse 14, or John 17, verse 11. Start there and go into verse 14. Jesus, this is called his high priestly prayer, and in this he begins to pray. He says, I'm departing from the world, and they are staying in it. He's talking about his people that he is rescuing. He says, but I'm coming to you, Holy Father. You've given me your name, and now protect them by the power of your name. So what Jesus is basically praying, he says, Father, I'm leaving this planet, this world, this kingdom, and I'm going to your kingdom. I'm going to heaven, is what he describes. And so I'm leaving, departing, but those people whom I'm rescuing are still going to be in this world. So just take a look at that last phrase of verse 11. It's really powerful. He says, um, now protect them by the power of your name. Just that phrase, just meditate, 
Take a snapshot of that in your mind. Think about that and just say law upon that. He says, protect them by the power of your name. So the question is, how much power is in God's name? I mean, how much power, sustaining power is actually in God's name to rescue you, not only from an eternal sense, but also to sustain you in this present world, in the current situations, in the tragedy and the hardship and the suffering and the pain and the questions and the anxiety and the oppression, whatever it is that you find yourself in. How powerful is God's name to help you? We sing that song oftentimes, like, God's name is mighty to save. And the reality is I think we can sometimes mouth words like this and sing things like this and say things like this and theologically nut our head and be like, yes, yes, God's powerful. But oftentimes I think on a practical level, we live like practical uh, atheists. Whereby on the one hand, we might affirm it's God's powerful, God's name is mighty and so on and so forth. But on a reality level whereby we live out our faith, for the most part, we, we just... We don't really affirm that. We continue in our life just mastered by sin, mastered by fears, mastered by anxiety, mastered by unforgiveness. And these taskmasters just simply beat us and ruin us and wreck us rather than us recognizing that the power of God's name is there to release us. The power of God's name there is to give us energy and strength to forgive those who have trespassed against us. The power of God's name is there to help us to say no to temptations that would lead us down to a path of defilement. The power of God's name is there, and it's mighty to save. Do we truly trust and believe the reality of that? That's what Jesus is saying. But I go on, he says in verse 14, he says, I've given them your word, and the world hates them, because they did, do not uh, belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. So what, what I learned from this particular passage, what Jesus is saying is that I'm going to die. They're going to kill me. And the reason why they're going to kill me is because this world, this system, this structure, the way that this world currently is ordered. Now, Jesus lived in the first century, which would have been, if I can put it in this context, that world belonged to whom? Any guesses? Who did the world that Jesus lived in belong to? Don't say Satan, because we already know that. But who? Caesar. It belonged to Caesar, right? It belonged to Caesar. It was Caesar's world. Caesar dominated the Middle East. It belonged to him. And in case you ever wondered, how do we know for sure? Is this really Caesar's world? Well, Caesar would gladly, but he's, he's not there. He lives in Rome or whatever place he was living in. But he basically had people that lived in uh, the city of Jerusalem in the region, and they would basically reinforce the fact that this is Caesar's world. We know that this is Caesar's world because we have all sorts of military outposts everywhere. In case you ever wonder if this is Caesar's world, all you got to do is look at the military outposts. you got to look at the statues that are erected everywhere because almost... In every type of regime like that, people would oftentimes put up statues. Why would they put up statues? Because it was a reminder, this world, this environment, this society belongs to somebody. I went to the former Ukraine, or uh, the former uh, uh, Ukraine years ago, former USSR, uh, and there's statues of, of Lenin all around the place. And these were reminders to say that the mindset that is here, that permeated, that lived, that was ubiquitous at one point, was all the result of, of Lenin. Um, and, and these are basically tokens. So Jesus lived in this world. Another way in which they would say that if you ever wonder if this is actually Caesar's world, just look at the coins because the coins have imprinted on every bit of currency that you use uh, a figure, an image of Caesar, that this world belongs to Caesar. And what Jesus is saying is that I've given them your word and the world hates them because they do not belong to it just as I do not belong to the world. And what Jesus is saying is that my life, what I stand for, what I promote, 
runs counter to Rome's narrative. What Rome does, if they ever encounter somebody to the point that runs counter to their narrative, to the point that it's a threat, what Rome does to people that are threatening the narrative of Rome, they crucify you. So they with Jesus. But we know the rest of the story because even though they crucified Jesus, Jesus rose again from the dead. But Jesus says that even though uh, they conquered uh, me to the point of putting me in the grave, I conquered the death that they subjected upon me. That the reality is, is that we see that Jesus' whole point is that any time somebody who lives for God's kingdom uh, runs counter in their life to the world, the society at large, then they will find themselves a threat and they will try to eject or destroy or discredit or ruin or fire you, whatever the case is. So I just want you to think about it this way. Because a lot of times we tend to domesticate Christianity. We try to domesticate this thing, this religion we call Christianity, and we want it to synchronize. We want it to fit within the world. We want people to love us and love what we do and love what we stand for. Look, at the end of the day, um, yes, everybody hates obnoxious Christians, all right? We, uh, right? We, all, we all in agreement with that? Anybody disagree with that? All right, have you ever met that obnoxious Christian? Have you ever been that obnoxious Christian? We've all been that. We've all seen that person. All right, let's get down to the real issues here. At the end of the day, what Christianity is, it's a script that lives according to the heart of God, which is love for enemy. It's enemy love. It's forgiveness. It's radical forgiveness. It's forgiveness that means someone's going to pay the price. And at the end of the day, we do not like that. We don't want to live according to that. That is offensive to us, to be told to forgive, or to be told that we're broken and we need to be forgiven, to be told that we are offenders of God, that's deeply offensive to us. And that grinds against all of our sensibilities. So if you live according to that script, at some point you will offend this world. Now, we don't live in Caesar's world anymore. The question is, what world do we live in? And the fact of the matter is, is that's arguable because a lot of people would have their ideas and some would say, well, we live in the, uh, the Democrats' world or we live in the Republicans' world or we live in a bipartisan world. But the fact of the matter is, what we know, whether or not and how we want to argue that, what we do know for sure is that this world that we currently live in right now is not Yahweh's world. Would we all agree with that? It's not Yahweh's world. We don't live in a world in which Forgiveness thrives in which love for the lost and the unlovely is commonplace. We don't live in a world where generosity flows. We don't live in a world where people take care of each other uh, just, just because. We don't live in a world where we are just simply accepted as we are for who we are regardless of what we look like. We don't live in that world. We live in a world that says you have to look a certain way in order to be accepted. You have to put on a certain image. You have to fit a particular script or a narrative in order for you to be accepted. That's the world that we live in. And again, that world is not Yahweh's world. And when Jesus comes on the scene and says, I'm rescuing from this crooked generation, um, what it means that we, we now live as dual citizens. Let me give you a couple other quick verses, and I'll move on here from here, and hopefully this will make some sense to you. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul would say this. I don't have it up on the screen. Just listen to it. It's really short. He says, to the holy and the faithful brothers, he says, in Christ at Colossae. In Christ. A little phrase. In Christ at Colossae. That's who you are if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus. You are in Christ. In other words, your identity first and foremost is in Christ. 
It's not you're cool. It's not you're hipster. It's not that you like to you know, roast coffee. It's not that you are a student. It's not that you are a, an educator. It's not that you're a doctor or a doctor wannabe. It's not that you're a surfer. It's not that you are a student. It's not that you are a musician. You are in Christ at wherever you live, at San Luis Obispo. Um, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, please, please, please receive this truth today because it will free you. Because most of us live our lives saying, I am first and foremost a musician. I am first and foremost an architect. I am first and foremost a student. I am first and foremost a wife, a husband, a boyfriend, a girlfriend. I am first and foremost those things. And at some point, you will lose yourself in that identity. And when you fail that standard, it will crush you. It will crush you. And this is the reality that Jesus is saying is that I've come to set you free from this crooked generation. From this crooked generation. So, next uh, slide. He points out in Philippians, and I'll finish with this little section right here. Philippians chapter three, verse twenty. He says, uh, "We are citizens of heaven, where the Lord Jesus lives." So, a couple questions. One: Where are we citizens of? Where's our citizenship from? Anybody? Not a trick question. From heaven. Where's Jesus right now? He's in heaven, right? It's where Christ lives. What Paul says. So he says, we are eagerly, they can pay attention real closely to this, we are eagerly awaiting him to return as our Savior. Okay, I want to emphasize something real quick. Um, a lot of us, we've thought about this verse, and we, we have, I think there's a mistaken identity, mistaken thought in Christian context for the most part that says, we are citizens of heaven, and one of these days we're going to leave this horrific planet, we're going to go to another place called heaven. That is actually not at all what this passage is saying, at all. It's actually teaching we are citizens of heaven, and what we are waiting for is King Jesus, who lives in heaven right now, to come back to planet Earth that's filled with crookedness. Why? To make it whole. A lot of Christian dogma and teaching has basically had it backwards, saying one of these days our great hope is we will leave this wretched place this trailer park we call earth, and we will go to heaven. The reality is, is that the great hope of the Christian is that one day Jesus would come back to this place and bring healing. He'll buy back the property that was destroyed and ruined and mismanaged, and he will bring healing to this place that is destroyed. And that's the great hope. That's what Jesus said when he said, when you pray, pray, God, uh, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth, this planet, this zone, this area, this neighborhood, as it is in heaven, your zone, your world. God, let these two kingdoms come together. And one other final thing is Paul actually uses language of citizenship, which would have been totally familiar to every single Roman citizen. So if you lived in the first century, and say, for example, you lived in a a village or a city, let's just say, for example, it's a 50,000-person city that was just on the outskirts of the Roman Empire, right? So let's say Rome comes along, and they're like, hey, uh, we really like your city. We like some of the assets that you guys have. We think that your city would make a perfect fit for our kingdom, our empire. And they're like, we would like to annex, you know, bring your city into our, our empire. Now, um, Rome also has this little negotiation tactic and technique where they would say, by the way, if for some reason you don't agree with this, we'll crucify everyone. So you guys game for being annexed into our empire? They're like, yeah, I guess, sure. So now what happens is Rome would then basically set up what they would call a colony, 
guys following so far? They would colonize certain regions. And in colonizing this region, they wouldn't just walk away from it. What they would do is they would then begin to import um, uh, various images and pictures and paraphernalia that were distinctly Roman so that when you walked into that colony, there would be all of these characteristic traits of Rome. So for one, they would build roads, any roads that were all messed up and dirt and whatnot, and they would then build roads. They would put these big, massive stones, if you're familiar with any type of Roman architecture. They would build maybe a, a big temple, um, a temple that would rec- be recognized or recognize uh, Caesar. They would no doubt bring in statues, so you'd imagine there'd be statues all over the place. They would build out the city. They would add trinkets. One of the other things that they would do is they would change out all the currency. So whatever type of currency was in that community at one point, whether it's just the barter system or what, they would basically say, oh, by the way, now that you're part of us, we're going to give you our coinage. And our coinage also, just in case you ever forget, you belong to Rome. All you can just look at your coinage because every coin that you have has the imprint of Caesar. This is a Roman outpost, Roman colony. You are all now citizens of Rome. Roman citizenship didn't mean one day every person of Rome would one day make their way back to Rome. That's the last thing that Rome wanted to do. Rome was not fit to take care of all of these transplants. In other words, what Rome wanted to do is expand its kingdom throughout the entire known world. They would set up these colonies. And what Paul is saying, you who have been redeemed are a colony of heaven in San Luis Obispo. You get that? So the trinkets, the paraphernalia, the images of heaven are wherever you go. You get that? So anytime people should look at you, they should be able to say, wow, there's the image of God. We don't put up statues of God. What we see are people remade in the image of God. So when people look at your life and they see how you treat your wife and they see how you treat your children and see how you treat your husband, they see how you do your work, and they see how you make your music, and you create the stuff that you create, they can look at you and be like, wow, it's it's amazing. What's different about you? And what's different is that you have been brought into another kingdom. You're a dual citizen. You live in this world we call America, but you are also a citizen of another kingdom. One final quote I'll read. Great passage out of an ancient text. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus. Um, nobody really knows exactly who this person is, guy or gal, um, but most people would all agree that this person, whoever it was, was basically writing uh, from a non-Christian standpoint, and they were trying to articulate what they saw with regard to Christians uh, in the second century, which was around 130 AD. Most would uh, agree that this is around the date. So this is what he says. They, the followers of Jesus, uh, describing who they are, he says, they dwell in their own countries, but as sojourners. There are citizens, they share all things with others, and yet they endure all things as foreigners. Every foreign land is to them as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, they have children, but they do not destroy their offspring. Was abortion around back then? Yes, it was, definitely. But the only difference was they would give birth to the children and then kill them. He says, Christians, they, they don't kill their kids. He says, they have a common table, but not a common bed. What he's saying is that they were extremely generous with their food and with their hospitality and their openness to all outsiders, but extremely, extremely conservative with their sexuality. Compare that to today's world. We, as oftentimes Westerners, we're extremely giving and generous with our sexuality, but very conservative when it comes to our money and our generosity. 
But what this guy is observing is that, no, 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 Christians, they were different. They lived according to a different rule and kingdom and laws that we don't even know. They're not from this world. That's right. They're not from this world. It says, to sum it up, what the soul is to the body, that are Christians in this world. Just before Jesus was crucified, he standing before Pilate. If you guys are familiar with the storyline, Jesus asked by Pilate because really for the most part, Pilate didn't care whether or not Jesus healed people. He didn't really care about the messages that Jesus was talking about with regard to Judaism. He didn't care about that. There was one thing that Pilate was concerned about with regard to this person called Jesus. And the big question that was on Pilate's mind was, are you a threat to Caesar? Again, why is that a big deal? Because whose world does it belong to? Caesar. Pilate is on Caesar's pay staff. You guys following? Pilate's main job is to make sure that nobody upsets Caesar's kingdom. And there's rumor going around that Jesus is a rival throne. So Pilate asks Jesus, are you a king? Jesus says, I am, but you wouldn't even understand. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. And Pilate's shocked by that. He's like, I don't, I don't, know, how to, I don't know how to respond to that. Some have actually said that what Jesus meant by that, his kingdom is not of this world. See, his kingdom is from another world, and then one day he's going to take us all out of this broken world, take us to there. But another scholar kind of pointed it out this way, a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. He says, yes, Jesus' kingdom is not of this world, but Jesus' kingdom is for this world. How do we know that? Because we have all felt the bent and the crookedness of this generation. We've all felt that. We've all been recipients of the brokenness. We've all felt the bentedness of our hearts, that's even a word, to do something that's completely in objection to the heart of God. We've all felt the bentedness of our heart to do things that we don't ever really want to do, and yet we find ourselves constantly doing these things. We're stuck. We're trapped. By definition, we are slaves to sin. We need to be rescued. And that's what Jesus comes, and he says, I've come to rescue you from this crooked generation. Yes, Jesus' kingdom is for this world. And finally, what we see is, in verse 41, is that uh, the Holy Spirit would then begin to reshape this community of people, these people, into a movement. In this movement, verse 41 says, those who received the word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just ponder that for a second. 3,000 people just initially coming into this movement, this work that God's doing. Nobody was expecting this. Nobody woke up that morning and like, let's do an evangelistic crusade and reach out to as many people as we could. It just happened. Why did it just happen? Because they were following Jesus. And when we follow Jesus, sometimes our lives are not always nice, domesticated, simplistic, uh, common forms of protected, insulated lives. Sometimes when we follow Jesus, crazy things happen to like this. 3,000 people are impacted and we have to accommodate our lives around what God is doing rather than somehow making God accommodate himself around us. And a lot of times that's what Western Christianity is about is we want some form of religion, but we want to be able to domesticate it. We want to tame it down. We want it to where it fits into our life and when something begins to disrupt and ruin and remove our sensibilities and our comfort, we get a little bit discomforted, right? We get aggravated and agitated by the reality. But can you imagine the first church experiencing 3,000 people, how much accommodation had to go on amongst them? I mean, just nonstop. Imagine thousands of people coming to meet Jesus, and a few 
short chapters we're going to read, another 5,000 began to follow Jesus. So you imagine, this was, a mo- this was a movement that was beginning to gain this massive momentum. In other words, the idea of just building a church that was nice and comfortable was not a New Testament concept. So the question I would ask is, what if, what if God wanted to do something so profound? Will we welcome that? Or will we stand in opposition to that? Would we oppose that? Because it, it, it ruffles our sensibilities. It ruffles our sense of having comfort. See, at the end of the day, oftentimes, and again, this is just an indictment on all of us, maybe me, but I'll just take the reality is I, I think we, we worship comfort more than we worship King Jesus. We'd rather have things nice and normal and comfortable and seasoned and well-planned out and predictable. And the idea of unpredictability, the idea of something coming in and invading us so it's so big, so massive, is, is very discomforting for us. But what I'm suggesting is that this is what the Holy Spirit was expanding their hearts to accept. And what we see real quickly is that these people... They were becoming worshipers of Jesus. In other words, they were transitioning from worshiping false ideas, um, concepts that were not in line with Christ, to becoming worshipers of Jesus. We see them gathering frequently in communities, focus on Jesus. We're told that they would meet from house to house. They would also meet as large groups in the temple. We see that they were being trained as disciples of Jesus. They were subjecting their minds, their thoughts to being trained. And finally, we see that these were people that were engaging in Jesus' mission by announcing his kingdom. We call it evangelism, but also serving local gatherings. But also, at some point, some of these people were like, you know what? I love our local gathering, but I want to go create and form new gatherings in other locations, whether down in Samaria or in Antioch or other parts of the world, because that's what Jesus' people do. And this is really, in short, the type of church we want to be. We want to be a church of people that as we gather, the main thing, what draws us together is worship. We love Jesus. Sometimes teaching has this tendency where people are like, you know, teaching is like the warm-up, or like I should say worship is the warm-up to teaching. But the reality is, what should be the most important element of all that we do is worship should be the main thing. I mean, teaching should be kind of, if you want to think of it this way, in verse, is the warm-up to worship. Because as we feed our minds on God's word, what we're giving ourselves and what we're disseminating is knowledge, information, ideas of who God is and how great God is to the point where we, we, just, we want, at some point, this guy to shut up so we can start worshiping God because he's so amazing. He's so good. I want to sing to him. I want to give him everything. I want to cry out to him. I want to cast all my cares upon him, my burdens upon him, because I know that he'll carry my burdens. We want to be a community of people that are focused on gathering with with other believers. We call these community groups and all sorts of other types of gatherings. We want to be a people that are constantly training others for Jesus. We have lots of training going on in our church all the time. I mean, Sunday morning, in a lot of ways, is a training. We teach God's word, and we hope that as you guys are here, but honestly, we say this all the time, it's really not enough. There's, you, you've got to figure out ways to continue to train your heart and your mind. We've got trainings for men. We've got trainings for people if you're involved in business and you're working. And we've got trainings that go, are all over the place. If you want to just learn how to teach a Bible study, we've got training for small groups. We have all sorts of trainings. Avail yourself of those things. And finally, be engaged in Jesus' mission. In other words, the idea of rather than just simply sitting on the sideline and just being a critic was not part of the early church. It was like, we want to get in. We want to be part of what God's doing. It's not just simply checking off a list of getting it done. It's like, I want to be part of what God's doing. I want to throw myself in there, whether it be in this local community or some other community. I want to give myself, my heart, my all, to everything I got, my, 
my time, my talent, my treasure, all that I have to what God's doing. That's the type of church you want to be. So final thing is, how do we get motivated to do that? The reality is, it's not just so much saying, yeah, i got to make myself do this more. But the reality is understanding the heart and the aim of the gospel. And what we see, first and foremost, with God, is that God is this community that has no borders. What we have with God is this Trinitarian God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, that basically says, in essence, there are people that are lost, broken, that are completely unlike us. And that doesn't repel God. That doesn't push him away. In fact, the fact of our unlikeness to him and the fact of our sinfulness does not put God off. In fact, it motivates him to say, I want to rescue and help them. And God, what we see in Philippians chapter 2 is that he lays this sense of his glory beside to come into this world and take upon our shame, our brokenness, so that we can be rescued from this crooked and broken world. Christianity at its heart is an invitation. It's an invitation to come and receive from this God. That's what I want to invite you to do right now. We're going to have the worship team come on up and we're going to respond. We're going to respond by singing. If you don't know the words of the song, we always have them up on the screen. We're going to respond by partaking of communion. Communion, really, at the end of the day, um, should be taken together as a, as a community. Um, I know sometimes we take it individually, and that's fine. Um, but, but the reality is, I mean, if you finding the sense that it's just not what it should be, I mean, gather together as a group. If there's people that you know, gather together. If there are people that you don't know, just invite them. Hey, you do communion with me. Family members, community groups, Students that are living together, like, do this together. And then finally, if you hear just anything that's going on in your life, you just need prayer, um, we want to pray for you. We, we truly believe that God wants to bring healing and wholeness to your life. Because we have a God that's not distant. We have a God that's not out there. We have a God that has drawn near. It's come to us. And we who were once far off, far away, God has sought out after us to draw us near to himself. So why don't we all stand? Let's respond Let's sing, let's worship, let's put our hearts in a posture of responding to God, let's put our hearts in a posture, our bodies in a posture of receiving from God. It's one of the reasons why I encourage you guys, like as we sing, um, lift up your hands, it's just a way, it's just a posture, it's an external posture, it just says, God, all that I have belongs to you. I come to you with nothing in my hands, I just raise my hands as, 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 a, as a beggar in need of everything that you got. Don't be put off by that. Let's just respond. God. Sound good? God, thank you for your greatness. We, right now, open our hearts, our minds, our thoughts, everything to you. Just say, we want to give it to you. We want to lay it at your feet. You're a worthy, loving, holy God.